city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. All right, you might know the name, or at least the last name, of today's guest, but you don't know the story, at least until now. I'm happy to welcome Jim Tercy to the podcast. Jim, how are you? Very good, Billy. Nice to chat with you again. Uh, we've, we've gone back on ourselves many years, and we've known each other for many years, so it's nice talking with you now. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about some of those early days in the the, the store, um, the, the you know, not far from where the, the mothership store is now, but um, yeah, we'll definitely get there. Yeah, sounds great. All right, I'm going to read a little longer bio, and... Um, well, then we'll get into the question. So Jim is a native Oregonian who played at the University of Portland, 1977 to 1980, where he is to this day the pilot men's all-time leader in points, points per game, goals, and goals per game. He's also second in all-time assists, just one behind U.S. international Joey Leonetti. After playing for the pilots, Jim played for the Portland Timbers and himself worked his way into the U.S. soccer system where his chance to represent the country was interrupted by the Carter administration's boycott of the Moscow Olympics. After playing, Jim turned his attention to coaching and building what is Oregon's largest soccer supply store, Tercy's Soccer Supply. From 1986 to 1988, Jim was the head coach of the women's team at the University of Portland. In addition to coaching at Gresham High School and starting a youth club in Gresham East FC, Jim was the head coach for Willamette University's women's team for 15 seasons from 1993 including nine conference championships, an NAIA national playoff berth, and three NCAA Division III Elite Eight appearances, which included two Final Fours. Jim is currently the head coach at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, where he coaches the men's and women's team with previous guest Bill Irwin. Jim is also in the Halls of Fame, plural, for both Willamette University and the University of Portland. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for the intro. Appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it was, it's been. A, oh, sorry, Billy. Go ahead. No, go for it. Go for it. I'm nobody, nobody comes in a, to listen to me, Jim. Oh no, I just say it's been a long journey. I mean, I mean, I'm kind of that uh, first generation uh, now that passes on to you, next generation, and so forth. So I am the old guy now in the room. And many years ago, I I would see people a lot older than me running the show, and and thought, oh my goodness, will I ever stay in the sport this long? But I'm happy to be here. Happy to share my 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 days and my life in soccer. Yeah, I'm happy you're here too. And, you know, it's still, I've said this in Bill's uh, podcast, and I'll say this to anyone who asks or listens. It's amazing to me, and people will see as we talk over the next hour, uh, that a, a player can still go to a, a very good school in 2023, play college soccer, which is a pretty high level for anyone to make, and play for you and Bill Irwin. Um, right? Like that's, it's amazing. It is. You know, I, I was out this past weekend just to sidetrack uh, recruiting and one of my ex-players at Willamette, I coached both, both men and women at Willamette for so many years, and one of my ex-players on the men's side, uh, his daughter wants me to recruit her, so I have. Uh, I said I've been here a long time. It's that's yeah. happening. Yeah. 
Well, that's I, I, I was going to, as we worked up, mention the men's. I couldn't find originally how long you had the men's program at Willamette, but for a while you had both, right? Yes, about six years um, I did both teams. And that's where, um, you know, I, I recruited kids like Chase Jordan, who now runs the store at Tercy's. Um, so a lot of great, a lot of great uh, players, both men and women at Willamette, who are still to, to, today anyway, uh, doing very successful in life, and I'm happy to see that. Yeah. I loved playing the teams you coached at Willamette when I was at Pacific, and I loved playing against Chase because uh, I was always going to learn something about defending a forward like that. Right? If he didn't score, it was fantastic. And even if he did, I I, I learned something because he was such a good goal scorer. Oh, yes, of course. Very good. And, Billy, you were one of those players that I always looked at was was a lot like me, I thought, as a player. So you were an overachiever like I was who uh, wasn't gifted with size or speed, but technically you you were there and you knew how to play and you came uh, to me, play the right way. And I enjoyed watching you play over the years. It was really fun watching you play. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so, well, let's let's start at the beginning here. You grew up in Oregon, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your yeah, movement I, from the coast inland? Sure. So I, I first of all, I grew up in a large Italian family that has a major role in my life in soccer because I was the youngest boy of six, and, and um, so we. I was born in that story. I was one years old. My father was in the shipyard business in the Navy there. So he moved to Portland. Uh, we went to Seattle for four years and moved to Portland. So I grew up in Portland basically from five to year five on. And my older brothers, um, who were again are five, seven, and 10 years older than I was, um, was uh, given the task of taking me to soccer games at Delta Park when I was five through 10. They would drag me along because they had a car and they played soccer. Um, so I was there on the soccer field almost every Saturday since I was five years old. And eventually when I was seven or eight, nine, they threw me in the game once in a while. And that's where I learned my child's basically playing soccer. I was playing with a bunch of older kids, um, watching soccer, practicing on the sidelines, obviously. And that's how I kind of got the fever for soccer. Um, so that's kind of how it started for me. It's having older brothers that being an Italian family, being Catholic, uh, you know, that's where soccer came from, basically. So we just kind of grew up from there. Yeah, I've noticed a, there's a theme. Delta Park comes up a lot in these interviews when we're talking about soccer in Portland. It's sort of a, a center of it. But also a lot of players who, um, you know, I don't know because I'm in and out now because I'm a dad. But uh, seeing a, a kid who's on the sideline who's not playing and is just waiting for that chance or, or just practicing on the sideline. I think a lot of players had that experience, and especially at that place. It definitely was. It was magical. Uh, can you imagine being a little kid and and being driven there, you know, by older brothers, and you get to hang out in a big park. It was just a big park with like ten soccer fields. Um, remember, soccer was not played in high school at that time. It was not even. Um, it was kickball, basically played in, in recess time. So for them to, and it was Mr. Udi, if I remember his name correctly. He was an old gentleman that ran the show at Delta Park, and I remember him being there, uh, kind of a heavy set older gentleman. Uh, he was standing watch games every Saturday. And he kind of ran the show there. You go through him to play. Um, and that was my first experience um, uh, in a sense of seeing team sport, having uh, having it organized um, and able to just watch my brothers try to participate in it and see the joy in it. And it was such a joyful Saturdays. Uh, we would always stop after the game. We'd go to Philoma. You know, on Marine Drive, there's a little uh, grocery store that's still there today after 50 years. Um, and you would go and have a soft drink and drive home. It was just, it was a magical time to be a kid uh, playing a sport that was considered alternate. Uh, nobody really played soccer back then as a kid. Um, so you were kind of different in many ways. 
Yes. And how did that pay off uh, or, or sort of manifest itself at Park Rose High School where you went? Because there wasn't high school soccer, you said, uh, but there was by the time you finished. Well, it's the uh, story started when I was in sixth grade. They, the, I was wrestling there and the wrestling coach said, hey, there's a school called Callum Gable that plays soccer and they're trying to find kids to, to play against. There's nobody playing anywhere. Um, and they were going to add soccer in high school the following year so and junior high. So in sixth grade, there was no soccer. Then the following year, there would be. But in the meantime, he said, hey, can you set up? A, I see you play kickball. I know you're very good. Can you organize a team so we could play this team from Catlin Gable on a, on, a, on a weekday? So imagine me being sixth grade, saying, me organize something. And so I, I had to lie in the field. I had to show them how it's done. Nobody had an idea. None of my fellow uh, classmates knew how to play soccer. They played kickball. So I organized the team. I remember the day. It was my turning point in soccer for me because what happened was you see a bus come rolling in. It says Catlin Gable. And you see a bunch of boys come off with white jerseys and blue shorts. And and we had nothing. We had just jeans, tennis shoes, and we played a game. And we ended up winning seven nothing. I scored seven goals. So I knew right then there was something special about me in the sport. But I think all those days at Delta Park growing up gave me a heads up on most kids. And that was the first loss Callum Gable ever experienced at that time. So I, I had I had a pathway going forward. And I felt knowing that junior high would best you know add soccer and high school was going to add soccer. There was an opportunity for me not to play football next year. So I was what I was going to do. Um, that I could play soccer. So that's how it started, really. That ma- magical day at yeah. Thompson Grade School. How do you process scoring seven goals? I mean, definitely that I think I had something too. <laughs> yeah, it was a, uh, I just remember I again at that that time of growing up playing with my older brothers at Delta, it, it gave me a confidence that I probably didn't realize I had myself. I had a pace, I had a different pace than most kids of them. For some reason I had two years. And I think um, the experience of playing, again, what nobody else did, uh, just gave me that edge. And it was just, as I said, it was a magical day. I'll never forget it because it really set me on my way forward to play soccer. And in turn, the following two years, I was middle school, and we played, and we were very successful. And then my freshman year, we went to high school, and they added soccer as a state championship for the first time. And we won state my first two years, and I was a major part of West Winning State, scoring most of the goals. So again, it just it just kind of triggered a timing was everything soccer for me because I was at the right place at the right time as it went along. Remember, 1974 was my first year of high school. Portland Timbers arrived too, so now it became somewhat of hey, this is just not an alternative sport. It's kind of some cool to be a part of. So then you kind of feel as an individual that hey, I'm doing something that these professionals are doing on, on a weekly basis here in Portland in the stadium and selling out crowds, and and I'm part of that now. So, again, I was in the right place, right time. Uh, my whole life has been that way. But that certainly made a difference for me when he stayed at championship at Civic Stadium. And I remember the important team. I remember Mick Holman being there presenting us the trophy that year uh, after the game. Uh, we played Danny Sheldon and Churchill in the finals. But, again, those little steps moved me forward and kept me just on the pathway to, to my success with soccer. Mick was everywhere. Yeah, Mick was. When, Mick, uh, when the Timbers flew in and introduced themselves for the first time, I was again, I was 14 or 13, and they were meeting at the Washington, Washington Square Mall and for an autograph session and meet the Timbers. And I remember going there that day with we got us a bus over there, um, and I met Mick, and I got his autograph um, at, at the Washington Square. Um, and so he was very important in my part of my life 
throughout my life. I mean, after that point, I mean, I ended up playing on his men, our men's amateur team after we finished professionally for 30 years. I was on this team too. I, I kind of was with him most of the way. Yeah. Amazing. And it's, you know, I've often said that, uh, and, and through this project, it's become clear guys that are my contemporaries, uh, I'm thinking specifically, even of like a, well, I could even go back to Tiffany Milbert, um, Chris Brown, uh, Andrew Greger, people who took the game much farther than I did, but we all benefited ironically from the, you know, the Timbers ending in 1982. And just, it was just a moment where there were enough players at a certain point of their career with no more playing opportunities, unless they were going to chase the game to Buffalo or Tulsa. Uh, and they started building the game that, you know, became the infrastructure for us. It sounds like you were experiencing a little bit of the same thing, a right time and place a bit earlier. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was really, it was the timing was everything. Again, you can imagine um, having a, being a kid at that age where soccer was considered like state wars were maybe 10 years later. They were the alternative kids. They were the bad kids. Um, that's what we were perceived as. And, and the Timbers validated us as, as individuals that we weren't terrible <laughs> Uh, we just love a sport that maybe most kids aren't aware of at the time. And um, so it was just, it was just the right time. Everything just flourished soccer-wise and gave me an opportunity then at that point after uh, finishing high school, uh, where do I do next? And UP uh, came calling. There was a first-year program. It was going to be a very first-year program. And Dennis O'Meara, the coach at the time, uh, obviously liked what he saw in me. And, and he said, hey, would you want to come and start a program here? We'd love to have you. Um, and at, at the time I had no ambition at that point. I was just a kid, didn't do well in school, didn't have great grades. Uh, I was just a sports junkie. I played all sports, played basketball, I played everything golf. And it's oh, I just play soccer again. I continue playing soccer. So I just again I, I said sure. And he had to work his way to get me get me in. But we got in, and again, I was there with a first-year program with 12 freshmen, other guys, some from Portland area who I played high school against, and some from out of state, out of the country. And we created a bond there and an opportunity there um, that really, to me, it was just another stepping stone of my career in a sense. How I got there, how did I do so well? Well, maybe because I had this advantage that other kids had. I played a lot longer. I played uh, again, I played with older kids most of my life. Um, and I had two gears, to be honest with you. I really had two gears. I was so much quicker than everybody else um, once I had the ball at my feet. And that's how I scored most of my goals. Um, I was just in a sense, quicker than everybody. And I had some technique, some skills involved, but that's really was a key for me at that point. So how, I want to go go backwards just a little bit if I can, and I'm curious how, because now a, a kid, a typical experience through high school is high school and club soccer. A lot of other opportunities, futsal, what, what have you, but there, but that's it, right? It was high school and club. Those are two sort of mainstay. That's a typical high school soccer player's experience. Did you have club soccer in high school? Oh, so when again when once they started high school soccer officially, I was then to be I was in eighth grade I think, and they started clubs. Imagine um, back then there, there was a there only a few clubs. There was Beaverton had a big club, and Lake Oswego was the powerhouse at the time. It was um, given the name of it, but they were the powerhouse. And we had one club on the east side. I live on the east side of town, and there was one club over there. And everybody from Lake Oswego club and Beaverton they wanted me to go over there and play, but I just I just wasn't driven that way. So I just said, I'll stay here locally. We weren't that good, but I'll just play club here and, and enjoy it and have fun. Um, so I did that for a couple of years uh, as we went forward. So I did play club. It was not very organized. It wasn't great. Um, high school was probably even better at the time. Not so much today, but at that time, high school was probably considered more competitive. But then what happened was 
I got involved with ODP. Uh, Dave Nicholas had a huge impact in my life. Probably the other person had a huge impact. He saw something in me as a player when I was in high school. And he said, hey, I want you to come out to ODP, which is then a new program, state, state run, which is a development to be on Olympic team, basically. But again, who was thinking Olympics at that time? So again, I, I was put on this team. I met Chiss from the other side of town, which I never did. And I saw, I, I was able to play and play with better competition, play with better kids. And what happened was he he figured out going into my senior year in high school, I think you're good enough to try off the Olympic team. I'm going to send you to the Olympic tryouts. Um, me and another kid from Lake, Lake Ridge High School, uh, Philip, he was a very good player too. So out of all the state of Oregon, he said, I want you two to go represent Oregon to try out for this for the Olympic team. Well, again, I was 16 years old. I was going to go to college in the fall. So this is the summer going into my uh, first year of college. And they flew us into, uh, it was actually the training center was the Squaw Valley. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we flew in Reno to they just picked us up, treated us like heroes, went into Squaw Valley. We were three weeks in Squaw Valley where Walt Chiswitz, the, the men's uh, national team coach, was part of it. There was 50 of us, 50 players across the country um, vying for a possible potential spot on the Olympic team. Um, I was the youngest there. I was 16. And again, the Olympics back then, you're U23 and under. So most of the guys were 18, 19, 20 years old because it was two years away still. Uh, uh, that time, 70, I was going to be 77, three years away from the Olympics. So I was in that pool of players, and I learned tremendous amount of uh, soccer skills and things I didn't have, abilities. For three weeks of heavy training, three times a day, I mean, you're living in soccer, breathing soccer. I came out of that camp back to, flew into San Diego, so we had an ODP event in San Diego. And I was, I was like, I'm a different player. I'm amazing. I was, I was like, we won every game in state for, for ODP. I was scoring goals. I thought, man, that was amazing training. And that took me into University of Portland a month later, or three weeks later. We basically started training camp at UP. And that propelled me to have an amazing freshman year. I mean, that got me to a point where I think I led the country in scoring for a while, if not finished the top scoring. Um, but it was that training, intense training for three weeks that got me to a point where I was just, I was just a really good player at that point. So that's how I got to UP in, in a position I was in. And I think I scored twenty some goals that year. I can't remember offhand, but it was it was an amazing year for us as a team and for me personally. Uh, how excited is Dennis O'Meara, who's, you know, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm going to start this soccer program. Probably take us a while to get going. What is you know this little Catholic school uh, in Portland, and he gets a guy fresh off you know training for the Olympics comes in and scores over twenty goals. Well, I'm sure he was thrilled, but I mean it was just not. I mean we had it was again twelve freshman guys bonding on a trip. We went on a road trip the very first week. We had seven games in eight days. You don't do that today, but that's what we did. Took a bus, and we got hammered by a few teams, but we had some highlights in that trip. I remember playing USF, which was the defending national champions uh, at a high school. They would run out, and it was sold out. And I remember in the first half, I got free, scored a goal in the first half. We up one nothing. a bunch of freshman guys, and the crowd turned on us. They didn't turn on us. They turned in favor of us, and us. And I remember after the game, we got beat 4-1. But after the game, they came on our autographs. They thought we were we were amazing. A bunch of American kids. Remember, back then, there were mostly international players that played for USL. So I think they related to us and it kind of gave us a spark. And we went on winning 18 straight games after that. Uh, it was really an amazing year. Uh, just not for me, but I think for the team, too. I think everybody contributed it. And it was a lot of fun. And I'm sure Dennis was thrilled. To say the least. Yeah, how how did you meet? Did, how did you first meet him? Like, how did you end up 
going to UP. Yeah, and was there a point along the way at all after you started? I mean, you're scoring a lot of goals. 66 goals is a lot of goals in, in a college career. Uh, that is, to this day, I think only behind Christine Sinclair, Tiffany Milbert, and Shannon McMillan, maybe. Um, right? Like, the the list of people who've scored more, it's, it's amazing, the names that you're up there with. But was there a point at all which you started getting attention and other colleges maybe wanted to take you away? You know, no, I, it was a weird career there. You, um, my first two years, it was amazing. I, didn't, I told you I had two years, literally had two years. I was so much quicker and faster with the ball at my feet than everybody else. And I, I, I was able to score a lot of goals based on those abilities. I got injured late in my junior sophomore year and I was out for a while. And it was, took me a summer to recover. And in that summer, I changed physically. I got bigger, slower, and I didn't have that. So I had to, when I came to camp, my junior year, we had a new coach uh, who didn't didn't really want me there for some reason. He was thrilled to say, "I'm not somebody better coming in." Just his his he wanted his brand, he wanted his name. I Is understood Mike a Davis? little bit. Yeah, Mike was Mike was just he came in with an idea that hey, this is my team now. We're gonna do it my way. You know what I mean? And and I think for for me it was it was more of a challenge because they knew he brought said I brought in a new player, a new striker is gonna be the, the difference maker now. After two great years, you'd think you'd endorse, you'd hope you would support me in some way. But in a sense, it helped me in a way. It made me realize later in life, as a coach, how to react to people and what to do. So in a sense, I give him credit because he basically broke me down to a point where I wasn't the same. And, and I, But I'm glad because it made me a different person as when I became a coach. It made me understand the difference of a player relationship with a coach. So I appreciate that. And again, I did lose my pace. I was not the same player I was when he got me, there's no doubt about it. Um, and he might've saw that too, but I was able to create goals and score goals based on a new ability. And that was to be my back to the goal, more of a garbage goal collector, knowing to be in the right place. So I scored goals, not conventional way, more of a, a way of saying, I'm going to think two moves ahead. How can I be in a position to score? So it, I, I created a different style for me and it, it worked. Um, so I was at that point, I think teams were probably, or other schools might be not interested in as, as me. So I wasn't the focal point anymore. I wasn't that standout speechster that 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 could shine necessarily. So at that point, four years of college was plenty. And and today, if you're a very good player at University of Portland or any team, you're going to be leaving after the first two. If I had two years like that today, I would have been in the pros, no doubt about it. But then there was no options. Uh, pro, remember the pro league back then in ASL. Only three Americans were were. They, it was a minimum you had three Americans, mm-hmm. and generally the Timbers had all European players and three Canadians. That was their, that got away with North American players. Right. So it was very difficult to have that jump in there. And uh, now that I, I had a chance to go to the pros, I was on the reserve team. I was happy to be on the reserve team. I played the year and a half on the reserve team, played Seattle Sounders reserve, Whitecaps. I enjoyed it. It was right for me. I knew right then that pace I lost kept me out of the pros. There's no doubt about it. So. So, uh, the, yeah, you're, you're sort of uh Jumping ahead. <laughs> That's fine. No, it's um because I, I want to know how yeah, how what was your experience like outside of the University of Portland during the season, during the time four years you were there? Because now a player could be off with national team duty or they could be um, you know, there's USL, they're they're amateur levels, they could get games. Was it the same way when you were playing? Because there weren't a lot of games. No. Yeah, basically we had two seasons, like we do a, a traditional non-traditional season. We have a, a spring season. But we had no really outside sources to go to. There was no USL. There was no U23 team at the time. Well, at least I don't recall. It, it might have been, but I don't recall that at all. 
I recall, remember playing uh, in the basically all of us did together. We'd play, uh, we would go play indoors, kind of big then at the time it started to grow. So we would go. I remember the Hood River had this huge complex where they would let us play. Uh, we'd bring our teams and play indoor there. So we did a lot of indoor soccer, really, in the springtime, amazingly. Uh, but it wasn't like a, an option for us to, to go on. Now, maybe there was in other, at least for us, I didn't feel that way. I don't have any of our players ever going on and playing uh, throughout the summer. Let's say, you know, we just didn't. We just got together before preseason and started again. It was just not as organized um, as it is today, obviously. And so so one place you did, and I'll, I'll, I have some Timbers questions for you in a minute, but I'm also curious about the Olympic pool. And so you played in that, but but you almost got to play in the 1980 Olympics. So I was part of that pool. So remember, there's mm-hmm. 50 of us that were in that pool. In that pool... Then the following year, we didn't buy it back and do it again, right? And they, they, they but remember, my first year was three years out, so it was it was a ways to go. Time we got to the time we got to the final selection, it would have been a final selection. It didn't get to that far. So again, we were in a sense of going to be canceling the Olympics or not participating. We never got to that final pool, so I don't know if I ever would have been selected because again, I think I, by that time I got there, I did not. I wasn't the same player I was the first two years. Okay. So again, I remember who made it. I remember uh, some, again, I was 17, I would be 18 years old at the time if I was on the pool. So I was part of the process until it was cut off, basically. Mm-hmm. Would I have made the final cut? I don't know. I, I just, I, it's up to the coaches would know that. But I didn't feel like I was ready at that point. I didn't feel like I was, my game was the same at that point. Uh, but I enjoyed the process going into it. I'm glad to be part of that group of players. I remember uh, Kyle wrote uh, Jr., was a famous player for Dallas. He was on the pool. There were some very good players that were in that pool uh, as we trained in there. Um, but again, I would say by time my time would have been 1980, I was not the same player I was in 1979 or 78 by far. Yeah, it's an interesting cultural touchstone uh, that sort of intersects this as well. And you mentioned Carver Jr. when you talked earlier about American players, Ricky Davis, right? These are like the, I think maybe Ty Keo, right? Does that? Yeah, there were there oh, were yeah. some, I mean, there were very few American players making a name in the NASL still that weren't goalkeepers. I know Winston Dubose and uh, Arnie Mauser were probably in that group too, right? It was very difficult. It was it, when again when I was with the Timbers, um, I was, I remember sitting with Mick actually, because uh, I was very really close. With, Jimmy Carlin was my uh, he was the uh, reserve team coach, so I didn't know Jimmy very well at that point. That's when we became very friendly. Me and Jimmy were very close friends, and and. Um, but I remember going to Mitch's office. I said they're going to start doing. Uh, what's my chances, Mitch? And, and he was honest with me. He said, hey, "I don't think there's be a good chance for you." Yeah, he was blunt, and it was hard to take. But I knew he was right. You know, what I mean, you just know it. So you knew the type of style of play that I was became was not going to fit into that world. And, and but I enjoyed my experience. That for one year, it was awesome to play on the reserve team. I was, I was again. I met Clive. I met just Clive was on the reserve team many a time because he was in trouble with. <laughs> Vic, Vic, he was always in trouble with him. And Vic would send him down to the reserve to, to show him who's boss. And that's why I got to meet Clive a lot of times in the reserve situation. Um, but, I, you know, after a year of that, a year and a half of trying to be on that, the league folded, basically, and they went indoor. So Timbers went from outdoor to indoor, and that indoor was not going to be for me at all. And I tried it for a little bit, and I just knew right away it was not going to cut it for me. And that's where I got into coaching, basically. I said, hey, I still have my knees. I don't have any major injuries. I don't want to chase this dream anymore. It's not for me. I just see it's not for me. 
but coaching gave me what everything it did as a player. It gave me a chance to compete, and, and I just fell in love with it. And, and that's how I got into coaching. That's my kind of my time frame. Is that when you went back to Park Rose? Was that your first? Yeah, so I was. I said Park Rose. I went there and uh, coached them. We got to the finals, uh, semis, a couple times. Um, had a great experience with them. It was five years there. Um, and then in uh, 1986, I never coached women before. I always coached ODP. I coached, uh, you know, I had my club I started and so forth. And then UP came calling and said, hey, I'm, the women's going to start a varsity program, first-year program. So I, I was a first-year player program on. First-year program, that sounds great. Women, I never coached women. I got there, and it was awesome. It was the best experience I had. Um, I was there uh, in 86, and then it was a part-time position. I got the job. And then about three months later, Mike Davis got let go and that was fired or let go. And I, me and Clive, I got Clive a job at Reynolds High School at the time when I was at Park Rose. We were safe competing. So Clive was doing something. Back then, we all had to do tons of different jobs to survive, basically. Yeah. So we had a camp. I had my own camp. I coached high school, da da da. And so did he. Uh, so he was at Reynolds when I was at Park Rose. And then that men's open. I said, Clive, is the men's job open here? Why don't you apply for it? And he did, and he got the job. So we both kind of came in the very first year. Um, both part-time positions didn't pay a lot. Either didn't pay very much. So I coached actually in the spring. I coached at uh, Columbia River High School in Vancouver, the boys, because mm-hmm. they played the spring season. So I did the women, and, and so you just kind of bounce around. You're doing everything, and and then I also started my business in 1986 at the same time. So you can imagine how many hats I was trying to fill at that point. I had my own business started in '86. I started a women's program at UP first varsity program there, and I coached high school in Vancouver. So I was everywhere. And luckily, my wife, I got married in 86. She's a school teacher, so she has, has something stable for us. So, again, it was just odd things you got to do, you know, to, to survive as, as we went on early on in soccer because there wasn't much pain at all, basically volunteering in most cases. So that's how it, how I got to UP. And then, in a sense, uh, 89, I left UP and after 89 season. And Clyde took over both positions because then it was a full-time position. He did get paid a full-time position, too. So it became a full-time position, one position. Um, and then I, I did not, I coached at Gresham High School for a few years and Willamette called and I got back into college after two years. So it and seems, been- yeah, it seems along your career, you, I mean, on one hand, you said you're, you're an overachiever at the start of this and absolutely. Right. So we haven't even talked about your college coaching yet or your business and how that took, took off. And, and earlier when you were saying, um, you know, you're terrible at school. And I think about the business you built and the people you've positively impacted through your coaching through all those years. On one hand, I don't want my son to hear this podcast because I don't want him to hear it. You can be terrible at school and still succeed to this level. But on the other hand, um, you know, they're just I think at any moment there's a there's a chance to keep going. But the thing I'm really hearing is um, through this structure of soccer, there was a real sense of community and the people that came in weren't just role models on the field, but off the field, there was a real support for everybody to help everybody be successful. Even when, you know, you and Clive essentially could be going for the same job. There could have been an opportunity there. Um, And, and, you know, with Mick talking to you and what was that ecosystem like of guys who just, you know, wanted to help each other be successful as they built the game? Yeah. You know, I think we were all kind of in the same boat. You remember there was like today, if you look at the structure of any club, it's a a DOC, which paid, paid a lot of money on top and it filters down. Then there was no money in soccer. Can you imagine that? So we were all in it together trying to build something for the love of the game. It had to be for the love of the game. Otherwise, why would you do that? I mean, literally, you you got maybe $2,000 here to, to a high school team, you know, and you spend more time 
you know, spending money on that than you would anything else. So it was really, it, it was like, we were all trying to do this for, for the love of it, not for the money of it. There was no money involved in it at all the time. So when Clive and, uh, and I, I was working with Clive, we we connected. We played golf together. We had the same birthday. So we had a connection there. And then we still love soccer. We, we coached it. But nothing competitive with each other. It wasn't like he's doing something more than I'm doing. You know, we're all trying to do something to, to survive in it. But also had this love for the game that, that we truly did love. Um, and I think that's just the difference from, t- from then and t- today. Today is just a whole different world. But so we grew up. Everybody was together on this, no matter if I was – a non-official Portland Timber, uh, you know, they they treated me just as equal. I mean, I remember being invited to every Timber reunion game, and they brought me in to play in those reunions. I was I had a connection to the Timbers, so I was always connected with them, and they felt connected with me, I believe. Um, and we were successful together. We rose together, basically, as a group. All of us. I mean, Mick, uh, Bill, you know, Ray. I remember Ray. Uh, 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 Ray, I'm trying to remember last name. Jimmy Kelly. All of us were together in a way we would play on at Jesuit and, uh, Thursday nights and play indoor together, or we play club. It was just, we were just a family together. Um, and there was nothing there. You know, Mick had great successes with Nike Adidas. Nobody, nobody took a fan. We still talked. We still played on the same, we played soccer together on a Saturday together. So we all had our successes as we were growing. We all did. We all rose together, I believe. Um, and nobody fell behind. And if somebody did, I'm sure we picked them up. Jimmy had successes as much as anybody, and he brought us along if he could help us. So, for example, when Clyde was in charge of the ODP program, he invited me to coach a team. He brought me along. He didn't have to. He did. So, again, we were kind of a family together starting to do this with no money and just have, uh, having an opportunity to build a foundation for the future. Even if we didn't know that we were doing that, or we, our plan was to take care of Billy Merkin 10 years later and make sure he has somewhere to go. It's, it happened. It happened because we – we, we made it happen somehow. We just did. Yeah. And when I think about even the, the years there wasn't the Timbers, so I'm going a little later here in the early 90s when FC Portland became the Timbers. But just before that, when they Bernie and Clive took essentially Warner Pacific and UP, I think they could have like four players maybe from each team and other people and yeah. started to, to, you know, that was the predecessor to the uh, pre-MLS Timbers mm-hmm. league, right? Yes. And that's more of that ecosystem. It is. It, it just, it, it kind of um, is it, an evolution of it. I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. There was there was a time period where there was no soccer, professional soccer, per se, in the state of Oregon. I mean, there was a time where it was really uh, clubs, like my club, Gresham East, was a powerhouse. FC Portland was a powerhouse. And we, the, the state became noted by these clubs, if you may. So we travel internationally, or we travel statewide, state cup. Before Oregon was considered... You know, nobody good plays in Oregon. It's like Montana would be considered, you know, Wyoming. Oregon was considered that for many years. And then with these coaches that came up, my my crew, I say myself included, we brought some quality outside in the state, taken outside the state, and we were winning tournaments outside the state. I mean, and that makes us as a state attractive for other people to come. As many coaches today have come here because they were influenced or saw something from a team that went there maybe and played. And so this might be a good place to play soccer or, or coach soccer or be involved in it. So I think we basically, when that dead period of no professional soccer, we were kind of like the court jesters going out, bringing soccer outside the state of Oregon and showing that we can play and we can coach out here. So I think that was really the probably the best way to say how we influenced 
influenced uh, soccer in the state. It was when we basically brought some some talented kids and helped them grow and showcase them throughout. And then at the end, it just made soccer a better place to come to uh, in the future. Yeah. And I love, I absolutely love the competition now when we think about the Timbers and Thorns even between Portland and Seattle. Vancouver's in there for Major League Soccer, uh, San Jose, right? Uh, but I also, you know, between 1982 after the Timbers NASL folded, 1989 about when Art Dixon got involved and started bringing them back, that seven-year period – up and down the West coast, it was that same network of people working to build the game. And, you know, players were coming down, players were going up and, you know, we were getting together to showcase, like you said, at the club level to showcase nationally, because nobody was even thinking about probably Seattle, even though they lasted a couple more years uh, in the NASL. Right. Yeah. So we, I think we grew the sport here in Oregon that allowed eventually soccer city to survive and grow. And people think, Oh, this is soccer city. Why is it soccer city? Well, a lot of those guys that played in the original Timbers stayed around, helped me uh, as somebody, a local kid. Imagine a local kid being uh, being brought in. Uh, without them, I would not be who I am. There's no doubt about that. And many people like me who, like yourself, even, Billy, you're not that far off. I know you think you're younger. But, you know, it's it's that opportunity for people to, to stay in-house, work really for nothing, but to for the love of the game that allowed – Myself and many other people, a foundation to to make a living in the sport now. Crazy. Think about it. Yeah, I think I'm young, Jim, but I'm the same age as the Timbers, as it turns out. But like, I've got they've got me by two weeks, I think. And so that's that's where this is coming from. We're both kind of hitting fifty at the same time. Um, Sorry to say that to you. (laughs) I'm fifty. So. Another thing you mentioned is, and this is something that was incredible, is the the level of high school coaching at the time. I mean, I think about the Mount Hood Conference, which you talked about when you were at Park Rose. You know, Portland's kind of an east and west place, or definitely was early on. Uh, Mount Hood Conference is an east county conference, and to think that they had Clive Charles, yourself, John Bain, right, because yeah. John po- coached at Park Rose as well, right? That's a that's pretty cool. And Jim Rylett. And Jim, uh, and Jim Rylett. Rylett. So, I mean, I, I think, if, again, I, I know I get in trouble when I say this, but I always wanted to coach East Side kids more than West Side kids because I always felt these side kids had less. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think they would go through the wall for you. As a coach, they would, they would, they, there's a love they had. This is not so much today, but I'm saying in the day, uh, there was a divide. East Side and West Side, there was a divide. There's no doubt about it. I don't care what anybody says. Um, the East Side kids, Again, I think we looked like they felt like they were underrepresented, didn't have the money the West Side kids had, whatever the reason is. But man, did they play hard and they were the overachievers. You know what I mean? They were the ones that would go up there. And I think, I think myself saw that. I think Clive saw that. I think Rylett. I mean, first like Rylett, who was the coach who's driven. I mean, he's hard nosed coach. That's ideal for him, those type of players. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, he just thrives on that. So I think at the time it was it was attractive to be there. You know, just remember Clive Bainey, man, they they weren't treated nice. I mean, they, they had to work hard to get where they were. And I think they appreciated the, the type of kids you get. Again, who would think that the East Side County would get all these coaches? But it, it happened. And there's not be a reason for it. I think that was one of the reasons. Yeah, and Bainey even said he when he was at Park Rose, like they didn't have a lot of resources. The 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 measured successes meant more than wins. Uh, even at exactly. sometimes at Westview, or I'm sorry, Mountain View in Vancouver, where he's you know, winning a state championship. That's right. 
And so you mentioned a bit ago, and now I want to I want to talk about Turkey soccer. Now is a big deal. It's the the largest uh, soccer supply store. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I know Oregon for sure, but I'm guessing along the West Coast, you don't have a lot of independent soccer store competition. No, it's it's pretty much it now. Um, and that uh, over the course of time, um, you know, uh, eventually Nike and Adidas decided they only wanted a few retailers. And they won the ones that they felt would be the best for them. And basically they eliminated the competition for us. <laughs> it took 40 years. I was in the business 38 years, but eventually that's how it happened. So yes, we're pretty much the premier, uh, the premier store in the whole West coast. And actually we, they ship everywhere. When I say they now, because I did sell my business in January to chase. So mm-hmm. I officially sold my business this past January. Um, so I was in it for 38 years and chase has been with me for 20 some years uh, I felt it was an opportunity for him. You know, he's got a family, he's growing. Uh, he's he's earned his time and he earns the opportunity to do it. And I know he could do it. So I was very pleased. I have no kids in my own wife. I have no kids. So he's like a kid to us. So, you know, why not? Let, let him take it over and, and run the show. So uh, I feel great about it. I know he's in good hands. But yes, for 30 some years, we, we basically grew it twice. So I, I grew it for about eight years. I first opened up in 86 and had a, had a major franchise in Atlanta called Soccer Kid come in and buy it from me, which was an awesome experience for me to sell a business after eight years in. Uh, but after a year and a half, they realized once I sold the business, I was the reason why people were coming to us and they couldn't get the same people to come buy for them. So they okay. gave it back. That's what happened originally. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear about that because so how did it start? 1986, you mentioned you were coaching uh, University of Portland, Park Rose. Uh, you're kind of in that that area, right? How yeah. did how did this start? Like, what was your first sort of movement into well, selling I mean, soccer gear? Having having coaching a college team, high school team, having a club, and knowing I I buy my stuff out of a catalog. There's nowhere to go to buy it per se. I said, why don't I be the person? Everybody everybody knows me pretty much. Who's in the soccer world? So I basically got a van in 1986, big old white van. I got I I talked to Remember, Nike was not has no soccer. Mitchell did not soccer did not have an opportunity for Nike. It was only Umbro and Mitre at the time, and Puma and Patrick. So I went to them and said, "Hey, I'm I'm willing to sell your stuff for you. Can I open a business up? It cost me two thousand dollars, basically, and I just got them to agree to let me be their uh, store, even though I had no store. I had a van and I had catalogs, and I would go. So I'm at soccer every day. I'm basically uh, at high schools or." A college or a club, and I just talked to people. Say, I could get you a gear for you. You know where you go normally, and that's how it started. It basically, was timing first, being right place, right time, and just didn't take anything. And so that's how it started. For the first year, I just had, I worked out of my van. The second year, I got a tiny little office uh, in the in toward Beaverton, which is my store is basically that now, and just worked the basically worked out of a closet for about when I'm there a couple hours a day besides coaching so it was just me being out in the public and and that's how it started crazy that's, as it sounds that's a, never do that <laughs> right that's so imagine, i mean imagine having imagine trying to start a business you would need to spend over a couple million just to get opened up at that time there was nobody representing the west in here at all the northwest so it was just it was just really at the right time and somebody so why not? You know, here, let, let this guy, let this kid do it, you know, whatever. And it just, that's how it happened. Simple as that. I don't want to say it. But it's a lot of work. I mean, it was a chance and it was yeah. a lot of labor just to, yeah. 
you know, just to get yeah. that going. I mean, you had some resources, but at the same time, I mean, that that's a hustle. And this is also before email, cell phones. No, it was a hustle. It was no doubt. I, I literally, I, I look back today, I'm, how did I do this? I, I really don't know. The time of day I must have spent, it was crazy. I don't know how, I, honestly, I don't know how I did it. It, it, it just, when you're young, I guess you just do things. But it was a great opportunity. It grew very quickly. Um, and I said, but in a, about eight years into it, I said a major, major uh, franchise, a mall store basically came in and said, I'll buy, I'll buy your store from you. And at the time I didn't really need to sell. I just said, well, why not? I mean, I, I don't know. I thought I did it. I was done. And uh, so that's what happened. After eight years, I, I sold it. And then a year and a half later, I got it back. I had to build all over again. Yeah. So tell me more about Soccer Kick because I, I, when I drive out to PCC, out, it's and you probably drive by the, the main building <laughs> yes. where they had it, right? You can see it off the off I five. It's they came in and they came in hot, and then they went away hot. Well, again, I think the, the World Cup happened. Uh, it was eighty four. I think it was eighty four. Ninety four. Ninety four. Yeah. So maybe ninety four. Yeah. So I, I, anyway, they were. They were considered a retail, though. They weren't a team deal. They were a retail. And they had all the malls in the back east, basically. So soccer was, again, remember, soccer at that time, and you might know, Bill, you'll definitely know, you're that age. It was a cool thing to wear. You know, I mean, you'd have those checkerboard shorts or you had those Adidas jackets, which every kid would wear. We'd be soccer players. You became, the soccer look became popular for a few years. I mean, very popular. That Everybody across the spectrum would wear soccer gear. So that boom obviously had to be filled by retailers, um, and they were they took advantage of it. They were the store for that kind of thing. So they're in every mall. They were there. But again, trends last. I started the business knowing I wanted to be in the team business. I didn't want to be in the retail. I wanted to be in the team business because the teams I knew would always be there in that sense. So my whole basis was team, and I had that team business locked up. And then they came in and wanted that team business. So. The guy from he was a head. He had a huge uh, dog food company in Utah, and he was the main owner of Soccer Kid. And he's the one that came in and said, uh, uh, "Can we buy your store? We want the Northwest." I was the only one there. And when he came in and bought it, he didn't realize that suddenly I was gone. He should have. They should have kept me on in the figurehead. Basically, they were smart. And and then Soccer and then um, uh, Jet Sunny opened the store, knowing I would be gone. Uh, far post. And somebody else opened a store, I think it was, uh, anyway, there was a couple of stores in Portland and they had competition more than they would have if I was stayed on. You know what I mean? So they basically realized I blew it. They blew it. They got now competition, local competition. And they said, can I get out of my contract with you? I'll give it all back to you. Just take it off my hands and da, da, da. So that's how it happened. Basically, a year and a half, he begged me to take it back. And now I had competition myself. I had Sonny, I had Far Post, who's established. Yeah. Uh, the West Side. Market. So, you know, it's like I had to start over and get that business back. And it took, took time, but I eventually got it all back. But um, uh, anyway, that's kind of how it how it happened in a sense. Was there a time? I mean, so think about like even your college career, you, you have an injury, you come back, you're not the same. You've got some adversity there. You make your way up to the pros or even the Olympics. And there are things that sort of show you there's a clear cap. And unless you want to go a certain direction and keep going, uh, you know, trying for a maybe right? There's other adversity you've got to face. Here's the same thing. You, you built the soccer supply store and you build it from your own labor. They basically lease it to you for a while, right? Or lease it from you and then they're going to give it back. But something you just said, now you have competition that existed only because you weren't there to begin with. No, it was. It, it, it was just, I never really felt like I couldn't do it. I never felt like 
you know, I love challenge. I love being the first of doing many things. I've always felt that way. I mean, my current, uh, I coached the men at Lewis Clark first time brought this program back or, you know, I mean, women, I was first player at UP in varsity sport. I was the first coach at UP. So first is, is important to me. I like being the first of things. Um, so there's an opportunity for me as a challenge. And it was like, I love it. This is, this is a great challenge. I, I feel comfortable. I could do this. I just, I feel like I never burned any bridges along my life. That's the key for me was don't burn bridges. Just, you know, if somebody doesn't want to buy from me one day, they'll come back to you. Don't worry about it. Just let it go. It's fine. So I kind of treat life that way. I always say, you know what? Don't make enemies. You know, you don't have to be buddies with everybody. Actually, I'm not. I'm just kind of there. But I think people feel comfortable that they can trust me in a sense. So I've always had that philosophy in life that, you know, just, just let, it'll come back around. Something will come around for you. Don't worry about it. And that's kind of how I looked at it. And again, yeah, knock on wood, it's happened too many times probably for me. But generally, that's what happened. Yeah. And, you know, it's something else is the the idea of a physical location, Jim, that first store you had in Beaverton where it was like, um, I don't know what else is in there. Dentist, physical therapist. Yeah. It was uh, <laughs> yeah. right. It's a little brown building. Exactly. Yeah. But we talk about, you talked earlier about East and West Portland. So I was growing up in North Portland. And when it was time to get soccer stuff, I was so excited to drive out there because it wasn't, I was, I wasn't just going to, going to drive out there and get soccer shoes. I was going to drive out there and talk to you, Mike Greer, Jonathan. It was an experience, right? You go into the store and I mean, it's overstuffed with stuff, but there's all that physical stuff's on the wall, but there are also people. And there's a conversation. It's you're talking soccer with people that, you know, to a kid larger than life. Right. And so that physical experience is worth something. No doubt. And that, and again, I think that's was my strength is that I I, would talk, I listened a lot. And then I was the youngest of six boys and I was forced to listen. I was never forced to, I never could come up and talk my piece because I would be knocked down if I did. So I learned at a young age to listen. And I think that's helped me throughout my life in a sense that I was able to chat with somebody and let them tell their story to me instead of me telling my story. So again, I think that's, you hit it right on the head. I mean, people I hired forever have always had to be, somebody I felt could talk soccer and could understand and, and, and not be the, not be the, the main fo- uh, focus of the story, but to help somebody tell their stories. That's yeah. what my goal is. And you had some of my contemporaries doing that, Zach Chow, uh, right, Chase. Yeah. But also now when I go into Tercy's, and it's happened more than once, somebody I coached in high school is working there. <laughs> there right? it's, it's fantastic. It's my world, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. It's Again, I, I, you know, it seemed like yesterday to me. All this seemed like just yesterday, um, but it's been a long time. It's been crazy. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Seeing you grow up and be, and I remember you as a little kid. That's all I remember mm-hmm. you as, really. So you having a, your own kid, and your own family, and moving on. That's awesome. But yeah, I still see you, and I see myself back then. I do. Yeah, I still do. Yeah, I do too. It's great. Um, so. I want to talk specifically about through the eyes of a soccer supply store. How have you seen soccer grow and develop in this area? Because it's gone through a lot of change and development. And, you know, I mean, if you're supplying the people, you've probably got a different opinion than, say, someone who only coached or someone who only had kids who got into it in the 80s or 90s. Well, you know, the the business changed. It's been changing and still changes today. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's, um, you know, the soccer, but I, I would say it's the soccer world has changed. And when I talked earlier about us doing it for the love of the game, to me, there's so much money involved in soccer to be made and to provide a very good living for a lot of people. Unfortunately, with that comes to me, 
who who pays for that? And it comes really from the from the bottom up in a sense, and it's difficult. So I see my business when I started the business. It was I I mean basically we gave things away. Basically, we were in a sense very little margins were being made, and we didn't make much money. I didn't make much money in my business. I had, I still had three different jobs. Having a business, I just made just enough to 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 just warrant my time, I guess. Mm-hmm. And now you have to, I mean, nobody cares about the price. They just, they, they, it's now you just get, you charge the full match, what it is, and nobody complains. In the old days, man, you could never get away with that. In no way. But today it's been somehow with the amount of cost it is to play soccer, you know, everybody needs to make a lot of money on it. And, and unfortunately it's a shame but it still survives. It still moves on. The business survives very well. I think even better than it ever has. Um, but then again, is the sport going to eventually suffocate itself? That's my concern. Where is those young kids that probably who, who in our day, Billy, who came from a poor area of town, had a chance to to do something with themselves? You know what I mean? For you know, we I was very lower middle class. I'm not sure. I mean, you're, I'm, you live in North Portland. You always clear North Portland might be a poor side of town. But there was a lot of kids that I knew that had an opportunity. Um, but today, you, it's it's really the, the world to do has the best opportunity. I mean, I, I see it as coaching. I coached a school that cost 72,000 years ago here. I love the kids that I coach. I wouldn't coach anywhere else. But I understand there are different type of kids. Right. And and I don't know if those other kids are getting that opportunity. And that's a sad part of it. As you, as you live life long enough, you just see the changes. I'm not saying they're good or bad or different. I mean, they're good. For, you know, it's life. It's not my time anymore. It's not my time. My time has passed. I've done what I could. I, I live in somebody else's world. And that's kind of how I look at life. So whatever that generation below or two or three years ago, how they dictate, how they how they justify themselves in life, great. I'm part of that. I live it. I live in their life. But they're the ones that make decisions now and not me. And that's fine. I, I'm happy with that. Yeah, it was. I'm sure rambled on there, but that's all right. No, uh, <laughs> it does, and I, I'm because I'm curious. You know, it, it's something you said in there. Also, I wanted to interrupt you, but I don't like interrupting. Uh, the price was never the price at Turcy's. I remember that as a kid. I'd go in there, and I'd be looking at stuff, and you'd be like, "You like those? Here's what I right." It was always that connection as well. And you know, when I think about that, I'm curious, like, why is a why is the independent soccer store still important? especially in light of what you've just said about how things are changing. And, and I'm also kind of with that answer, you know, you had to have had other opportunities to sell out, not just a soccer kick along the way. Was there a point at which maybe after that, that you thought, no, this is more important. I'm not. And you turned down other offers. Yeah. I mean, I had many opportunities to sell throughout it. I, I, I felt a loyalty to my brand and my name. And I felt uh, I wanted Chase to have that opportunity. And I, you know, it took some years for him to to figure out how to do it himself, but I wanted to make sure he had that opportunity because he, I taught him everything. He, he, my philosophy is like you said, like, if somebody comes in and says, I need help, I can't, I can, you know, I'll give you a bit of a discount. Don't worry about it. That, I, I'm the worst business person in the world in a sense, but I think the best because, you know, my wife came work for me and she gave everything away. I mean, I, just, she, I would never have her come in more than two days a week because, she would just give it to somebody, you know, that's just how we are brought up. We just, that's how we look at things and business had changed. And as I was saying, it was harder for me to be there uh, as I got in the last few years, because the mar- margins were important and we were growing so quickly. And for us to stay in business, I had to hit margins and then it became not as, not as um, 
as you would say, come in and just take care of somebody once in a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's more difficult. Uh, and I think for me to have a chance to sell it to Chase, who grew up, uh, played for me, uh, grew under my things, he has the same problems I have in the business. He gives things away, maybe a little too much, or helps out people sometimes. But I'd rather do that than than the other way, where just cater just a certain group and, and not care about anybody else. That's just how my business was ran, and I'm hoping he will carry that on. Because if I sold somebody else, a company, it would be totally different. It wouldn't be Tercy's. Right. So. I think you sort of answered this, but I'm just curious in the world of, you know, uh, uniform or shoe cycles. And, you know, you, you know, as a retailer, you probably know what's going to come out nine months before anybody else does. And it's important to have the right shelf space and the right display. And, you know, it's a very uh, scheduled thing that for the most part is out of your control if you want to keep, you know, turning over. I'm curious at the, at the last years before, what was in it for you? Like what, what was still gave you the personal feel or the personal charge as you were uh, doing the business with, as you know, it became more and more a, a clear, you know, cycle based industry. Well, it, it became because we had, we were hiring to, we had to hire about, with maybe 30 employees at this point. I, I, I basically ran that business uh, and I was there every day. I believe that whoever owns it should be there every day. Um, well, we needed two or three stores. The last few years, I, I didn't even need, I didn't even know who the other workers were. I, I I lost touch with who we were hiring. So I wasn't in the hiring process on the chase room in front, which is great. But at the point, I just didn't feel like it was my store anymore. It was just it was just too many people that I had no connections with, and that's my my built this business on connection. Everybody I hired either played for me, or you know at one point. And I knew them in other ways besides being an employee slash uh, owner. It was more personal. And when that became not a tentative, I couldn't attain that anymore. It became a point where I didn't want to be here anymore. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so that's what happened. It, it, we just grew so big, so quick in the last five years. It, it was like I was not needed or didn't feel like I was needed. I didn't know the people. And and hiring this generation, the next gener- this generation of kids, is a different group. No doubt about it. Uh, I'm not saying they're bad group. I just they're different. They're just different. There, yeah. and I didn't know them. And once you didn't know them, I felt out of the mix, and that's why I wanted out of the mix. Yeah. So I'm curious. This project for me is doing this project that I'm doing now came from. I felt like I wanted. There was something still in the game for me, right? And I couldn't. Obviously, I'm almost fifty. I can't play at the level I, I used to, and I have a family. I can't coach at the level I used to right i've got another job so this project came because it's a way i could kind of find something else in the game for me right it it, it excites me and gets me through um trying to do something at a higher level or bring these stories together is there anything in the game that kind of replicates the feeling you had from playing or that that gives you that connection well koji still does it to me i mean i I feel, I mean, even though I, I would say even the last three or four years, as I got in my 60s, I used to be able to play and, and uh, practice and, and and still show some of those things that I could do. And it made me feel good. Um, I remember, for yeah, example, in the last year, I think I was, I try not to play anymore, but I come out and do one or two moves for somebody. And if I connect on it, I, I'm done for the year. I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's still there. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's different. It's it's hard to. Uh, I, I kept saying earlier, it's not really my world anymore. I mean, soccer is not my world, but this keeps me in this world enough that I feel like I can contribute. If I cannot connect with a player anymore, 
or if I can't bring them some joy, then I will get out of it. And that could happen. I mean, but right now, uh, I feel like I still can recruit kids that, that, that respect what I have to say, and, they, and they, they seem to respond to me on the field, then I feel important enough to be part of their lives, and it makes me feel good uh, as, as, as a human, basically. So I would say that, uh, you know, as long as I, I connect still, I can connect with kids, then I'll still do this. And I don't know how many years that will be. It could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years now. Who knows? But right now, I do feel that connection still uh, with the players. Yeah, so I want to transition into coaching if you're if you're still good. Um, what was it like starting the University of Program uh, Portland program? And you know, you started coaching women for the first time, I believe, when you started that program. Um, and then, how did you end up from there going to Willamette? So, I, when I got the opportunity, I know the athletic director said uh, Joe, who I played who I, yeah. the athletic Joe director, said to me. Yeah, Joe Essel, sorry. Um, he said, hey, we're starting a women's program. I know you've, uh, you've you've been coaching. Would you be interested? Now, again, I'm, I was I think I was just no, I was just being inducted in the Hall of Fame as a player there in 86, I believe mm-hmm. it was 86. So probably maybe my, I came up to him in the sense I was being inducted. Maybe it would be great to have a, a, a Hall of Fame coach the first women's program. So I said, that was really nice, Joe. I, I've got the women. I'd love to try. I mean, it, it sounded great. Um, and it was great. I, I, I realized coaching the women was, it gave me something that I didn't feel when I had the boys. And that was the time and effort I put into, into the, into their lives and their game. They seem to really respect that or, or respond to you that thank you for, for doing this. While the guys of Tennessee to say, I got a coach. I'm good. I know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? So there's a different vibe there, you know? So the women seem to really appreciate maybe appreciate what you're trying to do and I, that made me feel good that I, I was I was part of that now remember I was at the time I was 23 years old I think when I got the women's job and I had a player on my team who was 24 and 125 so I had players on my team that were older than I was my first year at UP um so having to adjust and 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 learn you know that was to me it was a great learning experience but I fell in love with it. I really did and that's why when I left in '89 and I got out, I just coaching high school boys again. When the Willamette job opened up, uh, Jim Ryan had the job before me, and, and he was leaving. and And they called me and said, "Hey, would you be interested in coaching women here?" I, I had no hesitation at all, even though it was, it was an hour and a half drive away from my home, and it was only five thousand dollars a paycheck a, a year and <laughs> coaching them. That's what part time. Um, I, I jumped on. So I, I loved that connection I had with the UP women, and I got it just as much, if not more. At the well, I mean, it just was Division three or NAI, and it was mm-hmm. you talk non soccer in the off season, and while Division one, you were just strictly a soccer coach, and that's what you talked about. So mm-hmm. there was a, I felt like that was my, that was my home. Division three was my home because it was more about life instead of just soccer all the time. Yeah. And before we get to Willamette, I want to say I just looked up something that I want to share. If I look at the University of Portland Hall of Fame for soccer, right? Here's here's who's in it, the the two women's teams that won the champ national championship 2002 2005. But these players, if, as I go down this list of players that are in it, Yari Alnut, Justy Baumgart Yamada, Scott Benedetti, Clive Charles, Stephanie Cox, Michelle French, Lauren Hansen, Casey Keller, Joey Leonetti, Shannon McMillan, Tiffany Milbritt, and Jim Dersey. That's quite a list. That's good company. It is. It's, I'm very honored to be there. Honestly. Um... I, you know, I, I again, I think timing was everything. That was the right place at the right time. Started the program as we did. 
again, a lot of fellow Italians, Joey Leonetti and Scott yeah. Benedetti. Uh, and I had a time, you know, Scott, I remember clearly when Scott Those was are also assistant. East Portland guys. That's exactly right. Thank you. I was going to say. Yeah. But I remember clearly when I was uh, drive-by uh, Centennial High School, I was either, whatever reason, I lived out that area anyway. And I would see Scott as a young kid taking the soccer ball and knocking against that brick wall every night. I saw him do it. I didn't know who he was. I didn't really know who he was. I saw this kid. I, I knew the band. So I coached actually his sister played for me at UP. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Scott was that that's what I was talking about East Side kids at that time. They just they were just relentless in trying to work the trap. I mean craft. So I, I I really appreciate being with Scott and Joy, fellow Italians, Americans. Yeah. Um I felt like uh it was great company to be with. Yeah. So and so at Willamette, you moved and you, you know, what was it like to build? And I, I can say this honestly, a top level program in the country at the NAI level. Um, and then what was it like transitioning to Division Three? It was, uh, transition was an easy part. NAI was different. It was more difficult to, to compete. No scholarships. In. Yeah. And, and uh, but again, I think what helped me, again, was going back to the connections I had with, other players like Jimmy or so what happened was when I was at Willamette, I, I, I said, Clive, Hey, can we play you in, in a preseason game? Now he, there's no reason for him to play an AI school in preseason at our place. There was no reason. It was just, it was just cost him, but he would do that two or three years in a row. And we ended up one game. I think we tied them with Shannon's on team. And those things made us better. He allowing his team to play us, was amazing. And then even I brought my men's team uh, to UP and we played them in a preseason. And I recall at their place and, and actually Chase scored a goal. We were one nothing at halftime. Uh, it was crazy. And again, that's a huge risk that yeah. he would take for me in a sense, allowing my myself to recruit kids. We're playing UP, for example. So that's going back to that fellowship we had as a group of, you know, it didn't matter. It just, you know, help each other out. It's a perfect example of that. So, yeah. Why didn't you leave at halftime? You should just uh, exactly. Right? It's one zero. Chills. It was seven to one afterwards. You just laid it. In. But it was that wasn't the story, man. It was just yeah. having an opportunity for our kids to play at UP, right? Or the girls, for example, hosting Shannon McMillan, Tiffany Milbreth, and our goalie had one of the greatest games in her life. You know what I mean? So you, you just those opportunities don't come unless somebody's willing to take that chance. And I remember Clive was very upset after the game. Because it could cost them a chance to throw the national tournament because, you know, you don't lose to them. Even though we were a powerhouse, we were an NAI powerhouse, no doubt about our top 10 country, you still you can't afford losing to those teams. So, so you've, you've been that, to, that's what helped yeah. us. What's that? So that's what helped us for me to, to, to basically be a nine years in a row where in a stretch, there was one stretch in those nine years that we did not lose a game. I mean, literally, didn't lose any home games in four years. Some, some players never lost a game. Um, and going to the final four twice, an experience you'll never forget. I mean, it, it created a monster in a sense, <laughs> because when you win that many times, losing becomes even harder to take. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's what happened eventually when we lost. It's a, it's, it's a fall that's hard to take. And, and I, I got myself not even too big for myself thinking, Oh, I must be amazing. No, it was just timing is everything. I had a great group of kids. And when you win at that level, the better kids want to come to play for winners. And that's what happens. I mean, the history of our conference and the Northwest Conference, for example, there's only been three champions in 40 years. Willamette for 10 years straight, PLU for 10 years straight, and UPS for like 10 years straight. 
in a sense, only three schools, because once you win, the best players want to go to the winners. And then if you just do your job, you'll do those players. It's very hard to break that cycle. So that's interesting. Yeah. yeah what was it like going to a final? You went to two final fours. What was it? What was that experience like? Amazing. I, I loved it. That was, that's where you get that juice is going as a player, you know? So just how they set it on C2A, I mean, it, uh, we had a, a preseason meal. You got the NC2As everywhere. The field's all done properly. You know, I mean, nice practice facility. I mean, it was at Ithaca one year, uh, and then it was Ohio West on the other year. It was the two hosted it. Um, it you just feel special. You really do. Uh, you know, we ended up losing both in overtime to the eventual winners. We lost in the semis in both those final four. But we were by far the best two teams there. I mean, it was just what it was. It just happened to be that way. Um, so it was, you didn't get a final win, but to me, it was enough. I, I felt like those two experiences were always remembered the most. So it's very good. Yeah. And so before I talk about, or ask about Lewis and Clark, where you are now, I want to bring up something we haven't talked about, which is Gresham East FC, the soccer club you started. Um, we talk about East County. I played for Gresham East as well. And, you know, um, one year, Yari Alnut was the coach of the, the club. Just, uh, I think the, the team just a, a year above me. And I even carpooled with him once from North Portland out to practice. It was crazy. Was like, yeah. So what was Gresham East? So that was that was me trying to give back to to the east side. I mean, honestly, I grew up on the east side. I, uh, I And I, I just felt like if I could help the east side kids any way I can, from my experiences that I had and help, I was going to do that. So what I did was I started just basically – uh, boys only. It was a boys only uh, from U12 to U14. At that point, I, I said they could go on and do their thing. But I want to make sure that age is so important to me that U10, well, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, you, you teach them there, they'll have it for the rest of their lives. So I always took the U12 team no matter what. I never stayed with the team. And I always passed them on to my other coaches. And my Greer, you mentioned earlier, uh, Jonathan, whoever was at those other ages. But I started the kids with me and then totally give them the foundation they needed and then they could move on. That's kind of was the plan of Gresham East. It was not about anything more than that. It was just East Side kids only. Uh, even though kids in the West wanted to come, we had a few kids come over to the West Side. I, I will admit, and there were friends that either their father was a friend of mine and said, "Can I bring my kids all the way over?" I said, "That's fine," but no parent can coach their kid, and it had to be through me first. That's kind of what there was. I did it for about five years, and we had some great teams. As you know, we had some state champions. My career took many of the state champions. I took a few myself. To state, um, one state, uh, and I was proud of that because that was these East Side kids had a chance to experience something that they would not normally get ever, and uh, and I felt like we accomplished that. And then it became once we were so successful, it became political. Parents get involved, and then they wanted it to be their kid to be coached their kid. And I said, I'm done with it. I'm closing shop. I just closed it up, and and Westville I think came in and took over. Betsy mm-hmm. took over, which is great. But I did what I had to do, and then at that point, it got to a point where. It was just too many people. Expectations were too high. So I think I did what I wanted to do. I, I accomplished it, and I moved on. That's how I looked at it. That's a, as a dad now and a rec coach, it's hard to find those. Um, and maybe this is my fault, but those the sort of organic moments of, of growth and opportunity that just sort of you know they they happen because the industry is so big. There are so many options uh, and you know pathways, and um, even even here, you know, we're we're a pretty small place. Right. But I don't think things like the University of Portland, how those um, programs happened uh, or, you know, certain clubs now, I don't think that I don't know if that could happen again. 
No, it is there's just money involved, first of all, and and with that with that comes expectations, and and also, hey, I I'm given this kind of money, I spent whatever, you know. It just it's again, it was a different time. I always feel like I was I was at the cutting edge of everything. I was soccer wise. I mean, I was literally at the forefront of all these things. And I was happy to be part of it and also be uh, you know be able to do things that I would not be able to do today if I started as a coach. There's no way. Um, so again, I, I'm very fortunate to be the, the forefather of of soccer in a sense of organized soccer. Because before me there was soccer, but it wasn't even organized. I was kind of part of that that way. I felt I did the right thing. Hopefully, I did the right thing for kids. Uh, I feel like I've done it, so that's all I could do. And I could be happy now at Lewis and Clark, which their expectations going to Lewis and Clark is different than other schools. Yeah. That's the reason I'm here. Because, so, yeah. yeah. And the lead way into it is basically when I got here, they asked me to come in. Um, it was uh, 14 years ago, which just amazes me. So what happened was 14 years ago, I I left uh, while I'm at. Um, I got burned out. Uh, then you know, expectations respecting to win every game and so forth. I, I, that's not what I'm about. I never was about mm-hmm. that. So I, I left thinking I retired from coaching forever. And that was it. I was done. I had great success. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, in every Hall of Fame there, too, as a coach or whatever it is. Right. I've done everything. But I left there two years later. My wife said, you're, you're going crazy, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and somehow, uh, like t- 10 days before the season started for the fall, for college again after two years, my the athletic director here at Lewis and Clark called me and said, "Hey, the coach just left. I need I need to come back and coach. I need I need somebody." And and the, and, the, and again, the relationship I had with this AD or actually the head trainer at the time here, he was my trainer when I coached at UP. He was a fresh new, new trainer at UP, and he became uh, he was my trainer for three years, mm-hmm. and then. And he came, got a job here in Lewis and Clark, and been here forever since, whatever. So anyway, small world is, and his wife was my AD at Willamette. So so we had a connection there somehow. So he called me and said, what do you want to do? I said, Lewis and Clark, why would I go to Lewis and Clark? They never won a game. They're terrible. When, when we played in Willamette, they were they were horrible. It, it was a joke. I said, I need a favor. Come and do this. I said, I said oh, I'll, I'll go up there and look at campus and talk to the president. I never been on. I didn't been to the field. I've been on campus. I walked on the campus and just fell in love with the campus. It's beautiful. And the president said to me at the time, "All I'm looking for is having these kids have experiences. I don't care about wins and losses. I want you. This is where our philosophy here at that time was: we want the kids to have great experiences in life. And you've had fulfilled your experiences in life and be great for it. So I said, okay, no stress, no pressure. I know they're not very good. I could walk in in a sense." Put my reputation on the line because I wasn't top ten winning coach ever in history of college soccer. I think I'm still in top ten for some reason, yeah. but I knew I was going to have a struggle, and I, I, do, I took that as a challenge, and I loved it. And the kids were not very good, and there's no doubt about it. So I fell in love with the kids in the sense and the school because the philosophy was: don't worry about winning, just have a good time and teach them something. So again, I was a part of my life where that's what was important to me in that sense, and that's why I've been here because. I feel like I did give some. I don't want to be last anymore. I, I hate told the school I can't be last. I don't want to be last. So I was able to. They were able to understand that. Hey, I need some quality here. Let me get some quality in here. So we did, and we've never been last. That's my second year. We've never been last. We've always been in that middle pack, because um, it's very difficult in the top. This school is very much academic school. Its philosophy is a little bit different, which I have embraced. And I think Bill, who I brought Bill in, has found new life in coaching himself because. He sees it too. You know, we go through stress of constantly have to win, 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 and there's pressure. 
there's a point in your life where you go, I don't need that anymore. And I think that's where we're both at in our life. And we both love it here. And I hope we, he said that. Yeah. <laughs> he said he did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's been a joy. It's a, so when you left Willamette, uh, I, I think I found in my research, you were just under 900, 90% wins. So you're like 900% wins. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Right? Like in, over over two decades, you know, you won nine out of every 10 games you coached. Yeah, and it's, and, it's, and it's not just there. I mean, as at UP, we were conference champions three in a row at the women's side. I was, we were always like 15 and four or something every year. Uh, when I was at, uh, no matter where I told I was, winning was not an issue for me for some reason. It wasn't. I was very lucky to get all these wins. And while it became those like amazing uh, run, it was, it was amazing. But with that came, you change as a person sometimes. You see yourself changing because the stress of having to win every game becomes more important than what you're there for. And it becomes that at the end of the day. And at that point, you don't, what am I doing this for? For me or for the kids? And that's what I tell when I recruit kids today. I tell, I say, me and Bill are old guys. You want to come and, and have a coach who's not looking to be better for himself or herself and not trying to move up into a division one or a professional job. You're going to need a coach that's going to care really about you because we don't, we already proved everything in life. We don't need that anymore. So it depends. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying where we are in our lives today is different than where I was when I was 24. Coaching was more important for me. <laughs> Winning was more important for me and how I got there. And I think as you grow, you realize, really, I mean, players really make the difference. You know, we are part of that journey. And now I'm in that journey where I can just help kids get the most out of what they have. And that's kind of how I look at it. So when I recruit kids, I tell them flat out. You know, I'm not looking to move on from here. I'm looking just to help you. So yeah. I'm saying it's best for everybody. Some kids want somebody else who's going to drive them, push them, and so forth. This is not where I'm at. So Yeah. Well, as a, you know, Pacific's the same division. And as a player in person, I grew more during that time because I could participate in my own life. Right? Whereas yeah. going to a certain place where you had to specialize in one thing, and this was the same even academically, but athletically, or work to fight to get a game or two. You know, I wasn't, that wasn't me. I wasn't going to survive at a division one school for four years. Whereas specific, I played every game and just, you know, as a, again, as a person and player, being able to participate in your own life experience. And I think that's something that being at Lewis and Clark uh, gives those students, uh, student athletes and having, like you said, you and Bill, who don't feel like you have anything to prove, but are probably still a little competitive. So there is yeah, some no drive doubt. there, right? <laughs> no doubt. And Bill, even more so. No doubt about it. But but I think we you kind of come to a point in your life where you kind of go, I'm just happy to be here, being with these kids. I mean, they teach me young. I mean, I'm getting more out of it, in a sense, probably than they are. I'm hoping I give them much. But they give me so much more. I mean, honestly, and I think Bill feels the same way. We just It's, it's a joy to come every day, chat with them, see them smile. And knowing that the world that they're going to provide for, for your kids and, and everything else is in good hands. And that's what you hope for. Well, Jim, is there anything we've missed in our in our time? Maybe not. I probably talked too much, so there you go. Not at all. I can tell you, no, no. Well, I mean, just I do want to say, Jim, for everything you've, you've given to me and to Portland, to the game, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV 
that when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the color, supper is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and we're in the So let's be born.